Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Bud Light. Did you know not all alcohol products are required to list their ingredients? This was news to me. Bud Light is changing the game, though. They believe that we deserve to know our beer's ingredients, so they put an ingredients label right on the packaging. Bud Light, brewed with hops, barley water, and rice. No corn syrup, no preservatives, and no artificial flavors. Find out what ingredients are in your beer. Bud Light, enjoy responsibly. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. Navy Federal is proud to serve over 8 million members and is open to active duty military, the DOD, veterans, and their family members. Receive a lifetime of membership benefits like a credit card APR average that is 4% lower than the industry's members-only exclusive rates and more. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. Call 1-888-842-6328 or download the Navy Federal Credit Union app today. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. I need sports to have to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am editor at TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, go back to those gold sounds, it's Andy Greenwald! We got to talk seriously, man. Like, I haven't seen you in person in over a week and now I hear... You are, it's just, it just, it just drip season. Listen, you are little babying slices of fruit into ranch dressing in I the I am studio? eating lunch on the run. This is not how okay. I wanted to start this podcast, but Kaya attacked me because I dipped an apple in ranch in the snack box and I had a bite of it. And she looked at me like I had just emerged from a lagoon covered in toxic <laughs> waste. I've never Look. felt more judged. I'm. I got to be honest with you. I've, I've known you for 23 years, and I'm Team Kaya on this one. I understand <laughs> that the great prophet Gunna recently said "drip or drown," but there are other choices. And I think that it's time to push back. Look, I'm not in the studio. I haven't even said that we're going to be talking about like pavement, and maybe we'll talk about the Oscars. And maybe we'll talk about um, Jesse Russian Pinkman. Doll, all, yeah, all this stuff. All, all the hot topics. And I also am joined later in the show by Jamie Bell. Well, that's exciting. Can I join you? You have to go back in time to do it. Oh, I hate when that happens. That's great. I mean, and look, look, I, I'm getting distracted from the totally off topic message I want to communicate on this podcast, which is it's time to stake out some ground against against Big Ranch, because I think ranch as a concept, I just I'm I'm over it. I'm over it. And I, the fact that you are you are buying into this fallacy that this is an all purpose condiment is worrisome to me. And you're my friend, so I have to look out for you. So I'm not going to be shamed by you or Kaya, for that matter, okay? Like, I've got a couple more uh, miles on the odometer than Kaya does, and if I've arrived at the point of Wait, my life... I, Chris? Yeah? I don't mean to be rude, but she lives, like, in Redondo Beach, so I think her odometer is flush. <laughs> I think in, That's like, true. In, in human years... Kaya, feel free to go, on. go hot mic and weigh in here. Like, let's not like let's not duck this fight. Let's have it out. Like, let's get some resolution here. Fruit sh- like should be eaten with sweet stuff like peanut butter and Nutella, and savory Wait. dressings should be saved for savory vegetables. So, if you want to, wait, okay. Now I'm against both of you because <laughs> wow, we just triangulated the takes here, and you know. This what is, is the like, correct condiment? This is like Bill Kaya Clinton for, 98 triangulation of takes. <laughs> which one of you is Ross Perot? Listen, <laughs> here, here is the uh, correct topping for mango, a sweet fruit. It is salt, lime juice, and maybe chili. 
Okay. That is the correct topping for a sweet fruit. And that's savory. No, I mean like I'm talking about like hummus. I'm talking about like dressing. She said I wasn't allowed to dip an apple in hummus. And I was like, oh. what's gross about what? that? What? Yeah. yeah. That's fine. No. <laughs> that's I, I, guys, fine. you misunderstand me. It wasn't the dipping of the apple. I just think ranch is gross. Yeah, but that's what they put Unless in the box. Like if I had any self-respect, I wouldn't be eating food from Starbucks in the first place. But I'm like trying to jam a bunch of stuff in today. And so it's like all in this little plastic box and the dipping condiment that I have in this box is ranch. Now, I'm not putting Chris, the chocolate raisins Chris, in the ranch. Like, I have some lines. I have some boundaries. But I think Chris, that, like, if it's, is, like... This is classic obfuscation. What you were leaving out <laughs> is that there are baby carrots there. That's what the ranch is for. Yeah, I'm aware of Second, that. Second, listen, I, look, I hope you're happy. I'm personally shocked that you're voting for Howard Schultz in this way. <laughs> And we should probably go back to pop culture. Like, this might be the last episode of the podcast. Yeah, I, don't know. I mean, I basically, I don't know. it's like, I basically ate this apple covered in ranch, and I might as well have been saying Klobuchar 2020. That's like, <laughs> that's how Kyle looked at me. It's just wrong. All right. All right. Uh, okay. So now that we've gotten off this topic and that there's like an irreparable schism between me and, and producer Kaya, let's talk a little bit about some of the news this week. The one thing I wanted to kind of mention was, and this sort of actually, I, I feel like kind of went under the radar a little bit, but it was announced that the Breaking Bad spinoff film that Vince Gilligan is doing that is going to f be about Jesse Pinkman after the finale, I believe is what we've kind of come to this understanding, wouldn't be before, yeah. is actually going to be on Netflix first. And they seem to, like, it's really interesting right now because... A, that reverses the stream of what the usual Breaking Bad kind of distribution model is, which is the, these shows are on AMC, and then what happens is they kind of get like a second life on Netflix, and that's happened with Breaking Bad, that's happened with Better Call Saul, particularly over the last couple of years, that people are catching up, catching up, and then the seasons on AMC kind of get a little bit of buzz going from their Netflix uh, viewership. They're kind of reversing that now and they're talking about going straight to Netflix with this Jesse Pinkman thing and then taking it to AMC in which it might be kind of shown as a miniseries I don't know it's still unclear to me whether this is like a very long movie or a short limited series about Jesse or what it's going to be about I kind of feel like Saul made these dudes, like, they they have my money. So, like, whatever they want to do here, even though they might be tampering with greatness, I, I'm, I'm into. Uh, do you have any reaction to either the distribution model or the or any of this other stuff? I'm just confused by the model. Um, you know, I think we knew from the news that broke late last year that this was happening. This was likely a Jesse story, that Vince Gilligan was doing it. And I feel now the way I felt then, and as you said, Without the goodwill and the good quality of Saul, this would be entirely suspect. But this is how these guys work. Uh, this works for them. It works for the audience. Um, the other day, one of the executive producers of uh, one of the co-EPs of Breaking Bad posted the board, the writer's room board from Felina, the finale of Breaking Bad. Yeah. And it, a, a version of it before it was in its final form. But seeing it again was just a reminder of how completely precise and unique these guys are in their process and how almost immaculate they are, how they, I guess Vince Gilligan is like this, and he assembled a room full of people who are the same, that they just do best painting themselves out of corners. 
And that's a kind of logical mind that I truly respect and do not at all relate to. And it's the same sort of approach that they brought to solving the problems that they themselves created on their show that they're bringing to how to con- continue to play with this universe. It's like they keep daring themselves right. and that's how they work best. So content wise, sure, I'm all in. Well, um, and that's the interesting, just, you bring up an interesting point with the finale of Breaking Bad because I think on the surface level, when you watch that episode and finish it, and this is a spoiler for anybody who's not finished Breaking Bad, but Jesse gets away. And you're like, finally, this guy is free. And you kind of feel this cathartic moment that he's the survivor of all of this. And then very quickly, you as and you come to the conclusion, as did Vince Gilligan when he spoke after the show was over, that they're going to find Jesse. Like, like the cops, like Jesse's prints are everywhere. And like, in reality, he probably has like a couple of days, a couple of weeks on the road and and gets caught. Now, that's not necessarily what happens. That's not canon. It's just his, it was the way he was feeling whenever he gave that quote. But to me, it's like, I don't actually think that they're screwing with like the thematic end or, or not tying of Breaking Bad because I think, like you're saying, Breaking Bad was always about kind of getting out of those corners. And what happens to a guy who thinks he's gotten away with it is a really cool question to try and answer. And it sounds like a Western, you know, yeah, it sounds yeah, like yeah. a setup of a Western. It sounds like, you know, even something like Logan, you know, which is, which is our more modern version of a Western. And, and that's actually the version that I, I was going to pivot to comparing this project to, which is to say, look, I, I, don't, I know I'm not alone in saying this. I don't, I didn't care if we ever saw Jesse again. The moment you're describing this sort of euphoric lift of escape, that was enough. That was an emotional color that was painted on the canvas of the show and this finale. And it was a perfect ending for me and for probably for a number of people in the audience. But a few years have passed since then. One of the things that I wonder about Vince Gilligan, if he's thought about it this way or if it's just worked out this way, is that if you look at the landscape of things that get made and who will pay for things to get made and how to fast track things, obviously pre-existing IP, as we always say, is the way. But beyond that, you and I often have these conversations about how a movie like Logan is the type of the old gunslinger Western movie that James Mangold would have wanted to make anyway. Right. But the fastest way to get it made was to make it an X-Men movie also. And how Spider-Man Homecoming, for example, was a great teen comedy that also happened to have Spider-Man in it. And that was sort and of the, I wonder, the, the promise of Rogue One was going to be this war films, you know, that you have to right. latch onto Star Wars. Yeah. A less successful example, but exactly the right same idea. And so what I'm wondering well, is... If financially, Gilligan, I think that Rogue One did quite a bit better than than the Breaking Bad universe, but yeah. Oh, it did. I mean, I, you and I like Rogue One, but I just mean in in, in the scheme of things, well, we that's a whole separate conversation. Yeah, but no, I know, I know and, what you mean. And, and, and not as much, not as interesting to our listeners as my opinions on ranch dressing, because <laughs> I have my finger on the pulse. But what I wanted to say about this was it could be that Vince Gilligan is, you know, looking at the success he's had and also the frustrations he's had with other projects like Battle Creek, which was sort of this through no fault of his own misfire from on CBS a few years ago. It's the only non breaking bad thing that I think has been produced in the last few years and saying, okay, I have an idea for a story. And maybe it's a story about someone who thought he got away. It's a crime story. It's a Western. Well, he bends it into this box and then he gets to make it. And, that's fine. You know, that's, that's, there's a, there's a version of it where you could say, I wish he left well enough alone. I wish he worked on original material, but honestly, it's kind of win-win. Yeah. I think, I think I agree with you. Um, did you want to hit on the Oscars at all? Oh, but wait, the one thing we should mention though, oh, is yeah. this truly bizarre distribution model, which I can't make heads or tails of. And I hope someone can, you know, 
and, and, and listen, longtime listeners of this podcast know that we never, ever fail to attempt to explain business matters when we are not fully equipped or educated enough to do so. But it is a, it's a bizarre inversion, as you said. And like with many bizarre decisions, it has to come down to money, right? It has to be that Sony is the studio behind Breaking Bad. Yeah, I, that's up. what I was going to ask you to sort of explain, because I think we sometimes blow past this stuff a little bit. But, you know, when th- there's a difference between who shows a show and who makes a show. Increasingly less of a distinction, but the distinction can often still exist. Um, in in my case, you know, the show Briar Patches, UCP is the studio, USA is the network. Both are owned by NBC, Comcast, Universal, Shinehart, Wig Company. So they are separate mm-hmm. entities, but it's the same company. AMC, like many networks, now really only wants to either own its own shows outright, uh, as they do with, say, Lodge 49 or The Walking Dead or, or do co-pros, basically, with co-productions with other entities. Um, and that's what they did with, um, like, Little Drummer Girl, for example. But so, but Breaking Bad is a relic of a time when AMC didn't have its own studio. And uh, Mad Men, for example, was a Lionsgate show. And Breaking Bad and its attendant spinoffs are Sony-controlled. So it could just well be that Netflix outbid AMC for a show that is spiritually connected and historically connected to AMC, but they worked something out. What I don't understand about it is it debuts on Netflix. Netflix things that don't tend to go away, right? So is AMC just having a secondary additional window that's where they what, will show that's this what I'm trying to figure out. Like it, Godfather? It's almost like a reverse version of what they do with a lot of indie films where it, it'll right. pop up in some cities, usually like New York and LA and a couple other places. And then a week later, it's on iTunes. So, like, I think a lot of IFC stuff is sort of like that. But, man, I have never heard of this, nor do I, I guess, anecdotally know anyone who has Netflix and who has AMC and doesn't have Netflix. I mean, I I just, I guess, like, I'm just kind of like, what happened here? Because you would think that AMC would be... And AMC has a lot of really interesting stuff in development. They're, they have that model mm-hmm. where they do pre-rooms to kind of sketch out a little bit more of a of a body of, a, of work for a show before, so that it's not so dependent on a pilot. But I'm kind of like, this is, this is like one of your flagship properties outside of Walking Dead would be to, to have a Jesse Pinkman show with Aaron Paul on it. I mean, it just seems kind of weird. Well... Or a movie, but I, but I guess the movies also aren't their, their bread and butter. So what I don't understand, and maybe someone can give us some intel or we can just continue to educate ourselves about it, is was this purely a face-saving move? You know, is it they're allowing it to go to AMC to keep everyone feeling happy and good? I mean, one of the, one of the trades, I don't remember which one I read it on, whether it was Deadline or Variety or Hollywood Reporter, nodded to the fact that may, for many people, Breaking Bad was a Netflix show, meaning that's where many, yeah, that's many what people I was caught up with Yeah, it. Ex- exactly. But Breaking Bad is known as an AMC show, and it's not like you, which no one remembers eight months later as a Lifetime show. It, it's it's interesting, and I don't know what we can glean from it, because often when there are sort of s- sudden shifts like this, they speak to a broader trend in, in at work in the industry, and I don't know how many more deals like this we will see. But we'll find out. Well, before uh, we get to this Jesse Pinkman thing, miniseries, limited series, whatever it winds up being, movie... Before that, we were going to get the second season of Killing Eve, which is quickly approaching, and they just put out the first trailer for it. Uh, it's coming on BBC America, I think, in April. Um, April 7th, it says, yeah. And, uh, you know, no longer show run by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, which I think will be really interesting to see what specifically she did in the 
you know, in the trenches with that show and see how it, how it's different. But we still have Jodie Comer and Sandra Oh. And, you know, they don't give away much. They, they explain a little bit about where characters wind up going, but there's not a whole lot of, of depth here. But it just, it looks like they're going to try to sustain the same tension of the cat and mouse game, um, which I think is, is going to be the, the central sort of math problem that this show has to solve, which is like, basically, how can you keep these two apart? How close can you bring them together and still maintain the, the buzz around the show? I got to say, first and foremost, though, my reaction was just absolutely happy surprise because I am so conditioned now to think that shows that I really love will be off the air for over a year, if not more. I was so surprised to see this trailer. I had not realized they had been filming the second season. I had no idea it was just two months away. It's so funny how far things have shifted that that is now a surprise that a successful new show would come back in a timely manner. But what a nice surprise to see it. Two, the Phoebe Waller-Bridge part of it is a big question. She was in the news a bunch um, today it was a, because Fleabag is coming back for season two. Uh, another show that I don't know if it needed one. I don't know how it could could have one, but let's extend her the same courtesy we extend Vince Gilligan because I think she's a, a wizard. The underlying question that, that Killing You season two is going to have to answer is on some level, how involved was Phoebe Waller-Bridge? And my, I know nothing about the background of that show, how it was made. It definitely felt like her fingerprints slid off of the show after around the third or fourth episode, just from the way it was written and, and the things that it was most interested in. But beyond that, the question is like, yeah, can they keep this up? But it's much more exciting to tune into, tune into to a show where the question is, can they keep this up rather than the question, can they get it back? And I'm, I'm all in on season two. I thought the trailer seemed to fully distill what was great about season one into 60 seconds. Yeah, and also like another great pitched down haunted cover version of an 80s song that's basically every trailer, but they do Addicted to Love by Robert Palmer in this in this trailer, and it's, it's quite good. Uh, let's hit... Can I hit Russian Doll for a second? Oh yeah, man, let's do it. I know that you had the great... Leslie Headland on the podcast already. I was so sad not to be there with you for that. Um, I went on a journey with the show and it was really, really, really happy with it by the end. Really satisfied, really impressed. And it turns out one of the things, potentially cranky things that I said when I first was on the fence about it after an episode or two proved to be true. I think you needed to watch the whole thing. You know, I am just sort of spiritually against the idea of like, oh, this is an eight part movie or whatever, but this was. And you, you know, the, it needed the second half of the season for me to, for me to fully understand it, to balance the first half. And once we got, once Alan shows up and once the show starts getting really surprising and dark and creative and the oranges start molding over, I was all in and I was really dazzled and hooked by the end. But I don't know if we have a word for that, but like that you, you need to watch all of it, the, the, the moviness of it, the cinematic part of it. We should, the Germans probably do already, but I was super impressed by it. I, I like Killing Eve. I don't know if we need a second season, but I, I have a lot of I have a lot of faith that we're going to find out one way or another. Did Leslie tell you anything about that? About whether there's going to be a second season? You know, I don't like to act that every time I talk to somebody who's made a Netflix thing, I just let them off the hook with that because I feel like there's some yeah. weird like black box that goes that stuff goes into where it's like very obvious that there's going to be more seasons, but they're really not allowed to talk about it, even though it's like patently obvious that that's going to happen. I mean, this show has obviously captivated like um 
at least the pop culture conversation over the last few weeks enough, way more than many Netflix shows that have multiple seasons. So I would have to imagine we're going to get to at least another one. And I know that they apparently, we didn't talk about this, but they apparently pitched it as a three-season arc. It's funny that you should mention that about the idea of watching these things in a huge bundle, kind of, or at least maybe waiting to pass judgment until you've gotten to the end. Because as we've sort of chewed over over the last, I'd say, 18 months, maybe maybe two years, maybe once Atlanta really start to hit, that's... It's really hard to do that for these hour-long shows. I was just... I just went back and I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to check out Patriot. And so I, I turned mm-hmm. on Patriot and I realized that, like, the last time I had tried Patriot, I got to, like, the 37-minute mark of, of the first episode. And so I was, like, re-watching it and I was like, man, this is actually... This is really good. Like, I would love to, like... Get get into this show, but I was as we were I was going through it and I was just kind of calculating it against other stuff I had to do over the last week or so. Mm-hmm. I was like, man, I don't know if I have the time, <laughs> and I know that really sucks. It really sucks to say like Patriot by beat by like having its way of telling its story is somehow like missing out on maybe the the um, the shot one would give Russian Doll because it's half as long but kind of tells like an equally weighty story. And I wonder whether or not in the same way that, you know, all sorts of media have gone through these huge undulations about like the way in which stuff is packaged, if we really are approaching some sort of event horizon for one hour dramas. And, you know, even as somebody who's made it his last month and a half obsession to sort of dig into everything about True Detective, the bar is pretty high to like hold my attention for an hour in a TV setting. Let me just say for our listeners who are wondering, and maybe who who took the under in the office pool, I am up to date on True Detective season three. I have been watching it week to week. (laughs) Um, And I look forward to talking to you about it more. I mean, I guess maybe we'll wait till it's done to find more time to talk about it. But you're not wrong. But I would actually take it a step further because I think our listeners know how we feel about like shorter running times. And I do think that, you know, that our experience of feeling the need to watch things in a timely fashion, in addition to keeping up with things we already like, is relatively unique. Yeah, of course. But that said, do you know who the happiest people I've spoken to in the last month have been, pop culture-wise? And there's more than one of these people. It's the people who, uh, in recognition of the anniversary of The Sopranos premiere, have started rewatching The Sopranos. Oh, yeah. There are at least three people that I've spoken to. And they are all so much happier, full stop. And they're so happy with their choices and they're happy with their evenings and they're happy knowing what they have to look forward to. And what I'm saying is not to say that The Sopranos is better than anything on TV right now, although it might be. And it often, it will almost always be in that conversation for me as as good as anything, if not better than most of the stuff we have at any given moment. I think it's something to do with just stepping out of the scrum and the dependability of it. You know, it, it's like, it's doing a drive you've done before, so it doesn't feel as long to get there, certainly. But something I think I do think, and, I, and I'm curious from our listeners if they feel this way, it, it, it's not just media professional related, the, the relief you feel when you step off the ride for a minute, mm-hmm. and you don't need to watch eight hours of Russian Doll quickly before Killing Eve season two or whatever else starts up, that you can just be your own schedule and watch the thing that you know, already makes you happy. It's, it's just a, we, you and I often try to analyze and diagnose the different cultural symptoms and maladies uh, that are floating around the current moment. And 
I do think that crush, that pressure has added something to people that don't do this for a living. I would be fascinated to know also how, since The Sopranos aired, how many shows that we run into this problem with where we're like, oh, the time or like how it feels to be watching this show were originally written as episodic television shows. And I don't know whether or not David Chase was ever like, I'd rather do six episodes of The Sopranos this season, but didn't. But so many shows that we watch feel, especially like on on Netflix, you know, Patriots on Amazon. And I I, I should say like, I'm going to try and keep watching it. And it's right up my alley. And I really dug the sense of humor. And Steve Conrad seems like a super interesting writer and director. And I know he's actually got like a really cool show coming up next. But I was just like, oh, you know, this is one of those things that's almost floating into the, was this a feature that got changed into a 10-episode show or was it written as a 10-episode show? And I I feel that way about True Detective sometimes this season where I'm like, was this eight episodes that should have been six? And it's, it's just like a fascinating thing where like back when they were making The Sopranos, there was really like you either did it that way or you made it a feature. You know, there was no like, we're kind of messing around with what we got and we're expanding and contracting the material. Well, I think that's a conversation we can hopefully have with David Chase himself when his Sopranos movie comes out, because it's all right there, right? Yeah, right. Finally, he, he always wanted to be making movies. He's now making a movie, but he's making a movie from the Sopranos world. So it'll be very interesting to see how that feels in comparison to the show, if it feels in, of a piece with the show, or if it feels like something else, like something he always wanted to be doing. Before we go to that interview, two quick things. I, this Oscar debacle is just wild to me. Basically, Andy's referring to the fact that they will not be broadcasting the Oscar awards for best cinematography, best editing, I believe best makeup, and I can't remember the fourth one. It might be uh, well, it might be one of the shorts. I I, I don't remember exactly. Oh yeah, either, I think it's edit- I think it's shorts, yeah. Editing and cinematography are just it's so wildly offensive and dumb and, you know, I don't want to be the one to say I told you so, but my one the one joke that I always use was like I don't understand why movies don't act like they've been there before because they're movies and they're the Oscars. It's weird that again and again this season, and our friend Sean Fennessy has been the one cataloging this wonderfully throughout this crazy roller coaster process, but they just seem to not understand what people want out of the show in such a profound way. And now it's just panic. And that's going back to the best popular film thing that was quickly, uh, quickly nixed. But also the issue with having a host, not having a host, letting the musical performers perform. It kills me because you know, I'm not the first person to say this either, but I learned the word cinematography and what a director of photography does because the award was given out at the Oscars. Yeah. You know, you you understand how important editing is. Let me tell you, it's the most important thing in some cases and in some projects. I learned it was as important as acting because of the Academy Awards. So it's just bizarre to me that the Academy that purports to represent movies would allow this to happen. Yeah, it's it's actually like, it's it's kind of like a stunning self-own. And I, I just... I, I'm kind of fascinated to see how this this perf- the show plays out in two Sundays because it kind of reminds me of how sometimes like when I, I when you write something, you know, you'll get an edit back and it's like, yeah, well, nobody nobody cares about this part of it, and it's like somewhere in the middle, and you're like, well, like if the person's actually gotten this far into the piece, and you feel strongly about what you've written, if somebody's gotten that far into the piece, like. They probably would like they're they've bought into the process here. And it's like, yeah, like if I'm watching the Oscars, just show me the Oscars. You know, like it's actually not the awards part that bothers me. It's all the bullshit around it. Yeah. 
And it's like, I want to yeah. see Roger Deakins be celebrated. I want to know about Thelma Schumacher. I want to know about the the great uh, artisans and craftspeople who work on these movies and see them celebrated. And you know what? It means a lot, not just to those people, but to the people who are like, the the actors who are we think that are the only board, the pr- price of admission that you have to pay is to see Amy Adams or something like that. Amy Adams gives a shit about this stuff too. So it's like you're just robbing everybody of this experience, and it just seems needlessly self like self flagellating. No, it's an it's an own goal, and it's one that we see again and again in as people scramble in the face of the rapidly changing media landscape. And the mistake across all these examples is always people thinking they can win over uh, viewers. I've almost said voters, and this is actually probably, we could pass this uh, this take over to our friends at Pod Save America, and it's probably the same thing. People thinking they can win over voters, they ne- <laughs> I said it, win over viewers that they were never going to get anyway, full stop. And in doing so, you alienate the people who actually do care, and you end up with the worst of all worlds. Millions of people are going to watch the show no matter what. So service them. Service yeah. the people who are going to watch it and care about it. Uh, before we go, it's Valentine's Day, and so we should just talk about this album that we love. Uh, we should celebra- talk about our true love. It's <laughs> celebrating its twenty fifth, twenty fifth birthday. It is Pavements, Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain. Andy and I have had Stephen Malcolmus on the watch before. Uh, Stephen Malcolmus, the guitar player and singer from Pavement, he's also joined us on Hollywood Prospectus back in the Grantland days. Uh, I would say that there are like four or five like. Not necessarily the things that are like the best, but there are like four or five things that have happened in my life that kind of changed the trajectory of my <laughs> life. And Crooked Rain, Crooked Rain is one of those things that I don't know that I can properly articulate, uh, which kind of speaks to its enduring mystery as a as an album, um, what it's about, and and sort of what it means to people is often very hard to articulate. Rob Harvilla wrote a piece for The Ringer uh, that went up on Thursday today. That is one of my favorite pieces we've run this year, which kind of tries to get at that, at the heart of the mystery inside this album. Um, mm-hmm. I just remember driving around Philadelphia, honestly, like listening to these songs over and over and over again. And these little throwaway lines at the end of verses verses or that were shoved into different references that are shoved into the end of lyrics. And just thinking that they were about me, even though they they were about like, <laughs> the last the farthest thing from me but just the way in which like the, sometimes <laughs> oblique or opaque art can speak to your experience in a way that much more direct communication can't uh is always been fascinating to me and even listening to it today as I was driving into work it you just go right back to the first time you heard it well what you're saying all rings true but also the idea when you're talking about obliqueness in art it never speaks to you more than when you were 17 or 18 yeah. so that might be unique to our experience with it and i'm sure everyone has the record cuz you you yourself are kind of struggling to kind of articulate it to yourself you know so when you yeah, hear you don't have a full grasp of emotions or what they mean or what you want out of the world because you don't have any reference points for them so when you hear yearning it fits into that hole pretty well and this is an album that is made by like really cynical, ironic, detached 90s people, but they couldn't help themselves. It's like, it's it's the swollen hearted masterpiece, right? And I remember my friend Lara got a, I think it was her boyfriend, someone she knew worked at Repo Records in Bryn Mawr. And so she got the tape a few days early 
And I remember this is the most, this is very on brand for, for your boy here. We were driving to Villanova to borrow costumes from their costume department for a school play. <laughs> and she popped it in the deck of what had to have been my parents' Subaru. And uh, look, regardless of whether you were a 17 year old like we were when this record came out, not even 17 yet. Um, so I must have only been on a learner's permit. Okay, my timeline might be a little sketchy here, but the point being, the first two songs in this album. I like that this is your true detective season three. Is trying to figure out. <laughs> I can't remember. Chris, you should see all of the dudes in flannel shirts with their heads bowed surrounding me in my office right now. Like that is that is deep true detective season three reference. Just know this about this rock record, guys. There are not many albums that have this good of a one-two punch. And it still it still goes, and it's still totally euphoric and uplifting, and it's exciting. I can't wait to read this Rob Harvilla piece. Twenty five years on, I know there have been plenty of pieces written, uh, navel gazing pieces written by navel gazing dudes like us about what this band meant, but I still haven't quite figured it out. So I'm excited to see a quarter century take on what it might have meant. Yeah, so everybody should check out Rob's piece. We're gonna go to my interview with Jamie Bell, who has a new movie called Donnybrook in theaters on Friday. It's uh, it's a really, 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 really interesting movie. I'll talk a little bit about that as we get into the interview. Andy, thank you as always for joining the podcast that you co-host. What, what, what a pleasure to be subtweeted <laughs> like that. Are you coming on a Monday? I don't know. I mean, are you going to have a snack box for me? <laughs> it's just ranch. There's no... <laughs> I'll bring a spoon. I can't wait. <laughs> talk to you soon, man. Happy President's Day, Baranskis. Bye. Coming up in just a second is my interview with the actor Jamie Bell about his new movie, Donnybrook. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by ADT real protection. When it comes to something as important as your family's safety, you deserve real protection from ADT. Real protection means the nation's number one smart home security provider is standing by and there for you when you need them. Real protection means having a safe and smart home with everything from video doorbells, surveillance cameras, smart locks, lights, carbon monoxide, and smoke detectors in a system that's custom designed to fit your lifestyle. And setting up custom automations to do things like lock doors and set the thermostat when you leave. Real protection means staying safe on the go in the car or when your kids are at school with the ADT Go app and SOS button. Real protection means 18,000 employees safeguarding you. Real protection means direct connections with first responders. No matter how you define safety for you, your family, or your business, ADT is there. ADT Real Protection. Visit ADT.com slash podcast to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you. Okay, guys, we are about to go into my interview with the actor Jamie Bell. Obviously, he's been basically a, a, a huge presence in the movies since his debut in Billy Elliot when he was just a kid. Gosh, probably almost like 20 years ago, at least. And I, I came across this movie, Donnybrook, kind of like randomly. It's coming out on Friday uh, via IFC, and it is a film by a filmmaker that I'm really just getting to know named Tim Sutton. He did Dark Knight and Memphis and... This movie, Donnybrook, is based on a novel by a guy named Frank Bill. So it's it's an adaptation of this Frank Bill novel. And I guess the best way to describe it would be a um, a Midwestern take on, on No Country for Old Men. Jamie Bell plays a man named uh, Jarhead who's come back from uh, the war overseas. 
and is trying to kind of keep his family stitched together despite the ravages of drug addiction. He enters or is going to enter into something called the Donnybrook, which is uh, essentially a, a huge cage fight. It's a, a brawl with other other men. And uh, the purse is $100,000. And to buy into that, he's got to raise some money. So the movie is sort of a road movie that tracks his journey towards the Donnybrook. And in the wake of that journey, there's cops, there's drug dealers, there's uh, just really like a devastation everywhere you look. It's not for everybody. Like, I'm not going to lie. I kind of feel like this is like when I was talking about Soldado last year. It's just like a really violent, dark movie with a lot of fucked up stuff happens in it. But it's really unlike any movie I've seen in a long time. Uh, it has hints of apocalypse now. It had hints. It has hints, obviously, of No Country for Old Men. But tonally, visually, sonically, it's really a distinctive work. And I was really excited to talk to Jamie about this movie because he had a hand in the the production of the movie. Really, you know, he's obviously taken a, a very big role in this movie. And it's fascinating to see what he puts his body through and what the other actors put themselves through to make this movie. So I, I talked to him about the sacrifices that he made doing this and, and what that experience was like. So here's my interview with Jamie Bell. All right, man. So let's talk. start here with Donnybrook. Obviously, it's a, a beloved novel by Frank Bill. When you get this script, I mean, you do such a wide array of work. What, what's going through your mind when you get this particular script from Tim Sutton? I, I think just kind of how elegantly it's written. I mean, I'd never read the novel before. Um, I never heard of it before. So certainly the elegance of the script, how kind of timeless the story was in a way. Um, there's so many kind of stories that I can recall of, you know, people setting out on these journeys where they're going to encounter, you know, people on the fringes of society and these kind of otherworldly characters and they're heading down this river and they don't know what's going to be, you know, what's going to greet them at the end and, they kind of have they have to come out changed people, and they're kind of destined to do it in a way. It was as soon as I read it, I was like, "Apocalypse Now." I thought about Mark Twain. I thought about you know, there's a lot of kind of classic American experience that is instilled within a story like this. Yeah. But then t Tim's kind of ornate ability to render beauty in brutality, I think, was something that really kind of excited me. It was very visual, the script. I wanted to talk about what it's like to be a, a figure in this sort of visual landscape when you go see the film now, because there's something about this movie that the violence feels incredibly authentic to the people and the place that it's talking about, but it's not really fetishized. Like, I didn't watch this movie. Like, maybe you watch Fight Club and you're like, oh, okay, like, I'm mm -hmm. kind of fired up. You know, this is pretty bone-chilling violence, but it's also rendered in this almost like hauntingly beautiful way. You know, how did Tim describe what he was going for visually when, when he was first talking to you about doing the movie? Well, I was actually all over them. I was uh, David Lancaster, our producer. Before I even had really spoken to Tim, uh, I mean, we, we'd Skyped and met and had our conversations and we both kind of agreed upon what the film was about. But then I talked to David Lancaster, our producer, and I said, you know, we can't make this unless we have like an incredible DP. Uh, that so much about this movie relies on beauty of landscape and, and expressing kind of visual beauty uh, on the journey and finding, you know, finding that beauty and the brutality that, that Tim had rendered so well in the script. And he was, he agreed with me. I think that was one thing that, you know, for David, our producer just kind of said that we have to get this guy because he clearly 
you know, there was an understanding beyond what my role was in the film. It was about how to, how one captures this movie, how, how one kind of understands the film. So I was kind of constantly back and forward, between, you know, with Tim and with David, like going, have you guys found a DP yet? And of course, we're throwing out all these names. I was like, yes, I love that person. Yes, I love this person. And then um, obviously they settled on the David Ongaro, who mm-hmm. shot um, this movie called The Prayer Before Dawn, which I just thought was kind of an astonishing piece of cinematography. It was important that he he could be economical. We made this movie for like, you know, a dollar and a nickel, you know, <laughs> yeah. made for nothing. So it was important for us to have someone who had that experience, certainly with the, the fight stuff. The Donnybrook tournament itself was shot in one night. It was shot in the, the last day of filming. So it was incredibly important for Tim to have someone who was just so equipped to capture that stuff and to capture it authentically, to not kind of set shots and, and be able to move off of two people performing a fight and move into some other people and find that moment and then move off of them and find something else. So we were incredibly fortunate to have someone so seasoned and just so experienced in this exact thing. Yeah, it's rare that you see a movie these days where the, and this is a little convoluted, but the story perfectly matches where it's set because this is a, a particularly, and in some ways it still isn't, but it's a beautiful part of the country that has this kind of like, almost like, ruin running across it, whether you look at that as like the abandoned industrialization of that area or the drugs that are running through the area or the sort of economic depression that's running through the area. And that's so well reflected in the way the movie is made because it is a beautiful movie that has something broken inside of it, right? Yeah, I mean, these are these are forgotten people. You know, um, I myself come from a, you know, a part of England that is, you know, once once industry kind of collapses, just the country kind of turns its back on these places and these people to a degree. You know, I'm certainly an infant of um, the result of the collapse of the uh, mining strike uh, in England and the collapse of the coal mining industry, you know, and, and much like the, the American Northeast, all of those towns and cities that were once these kind of shining bright lights of prosperity and opportunity are now faded into kind of darkness and desperation. Yeah, it's very much set in those places. What I like about my character specifically is there, he has a nobleness to him in his desperation. There is something about him as a parent that is willing to go to these lengths where he will die for them to protect them and to give them an opportunity to give them a better life. I think there's something very reflective of our times where, you know, if you want something, you're going to have to go out and fight for it because it's not going to come to you for free. And even though he's certainly a character who's, you know, his morality is sometimes questioned, I, I think he certainly does things that don't necessarily point morally north, but I think there is a nobility to him um, as a man, as, as a man journeying through this country with this young boy and trying to teach him what life is like and what he should expect and, and how to be a man. And as a parent myself, I thought that there was actually something very... Um, moving about that yeah i mean i found the the moment especially the scene with with you and your son and and with the heavy bag out in the field like after they've stolen Mm -hmm. the cop car to be like incredibly tender and and obviously Mm -hmm. in retrospect incredibly heartbreaking right right yeah i mean it seems like that you know these kids in this movie are totally you know non-actors i mean these two kids are uh it's their first time acting in a movie ever which I always think is a great opportunity because it just means that you have to approach the filming of them entirely differently. You know, you, 
sometimes it's best to not let them know that you're filming and you you know you you might not necessarily be doing the script or doing the scene but you're just kind of conversing with them as this character and kind of following the kind of loose structure of what the scene should be and then you can and then you kind of dip into the dialogue and then they're aware that they're oh we're doing it now and you know there's a there's a, a an immersion that they otherwise wouldn't have and Tim and I were kind of acutely aware to to make sure to try and keep them real and try and keep them honest all the time. So it certainly seems like that we would go way off of what the script was, yeah. you know, requiring. And Tim is, is a filmmaker who's kind of willing to do that. A lot of the, a lot of directors don't like that, and they, I think they get a bit nervous that you're kind of going into unknown territory and kind of wasting time and whatever. But I think Tim, he gave me a lot of authorship over this character, which I was very grateful yeah that that's that one moment where you're like you're telling your son to throw his hip into the the punch with his right and then you're like oh it hurts right and then you let him stop like it's just such like a perfect human <laughs> thing that like you have to kind of would only happen in real life sort of you know yeah it's true yeah, yeah. I, and all credit to tim i mean like he wrote really good things and, and good bits and pieces but i think you know you you have to and i really believe this as a filmmaker you have to give the space over to the actors and that means that, you know, actors shouldn't just be pressured into, you know, action. Okay, do the, do the scene for 30 seconds. Now cut. Now, okay, now do it. Like, there's something about not giving the space to them that I think is, is, is just counterproductive to what an actor should be able to do. I think actors are operating from a place of nervousness a lot of the time because you never feel like you have the authority within the space. Mm-hmm. And Tim is someone who um, just so willingly handed that over. And I, you know, I just felt so grateful for that. So uh, obviously in a, in a movie called Donnybrook, I'm going to ask you about fights. The uh-huh. first sort of confrontation in the movie happens when you uh, come across Frank Grillo in your house uh, selling drugs to your, your wife. And it's not really like m- most movie fights in the sense that, I mean, it's, it's probably closer to what most real life fights are like, where it kind of happens on like a snap, right? And it's also like you don't really know what's going to happen. How do you choreograph something like that? So you talk to the director, you know, because obviously as the actor, you've sat with this character, you've prepped this character, you've, you know, created this kind of backstory that doesn't really exist that we wouldn't have time to go into, nor should we, because it'd probably be very dull. But you've invented it for yourself so that you have something to fall back on all the time. You know, I watched a lot of kind of, men returning home to small towns from the military and what their life is like and how difficult it is for them to kind of re-engage in the world and how a lot of them will end up drinking and yada, yada. So I'm coming at that scene with all of that stuff. And Tim has written a two-page scene before the fight even begins. Right. And I said, Tim, we have to cut everything. Like, literally everything has to go. There's no way that I'm coming in and saying lines of dialogue when I see someone who's, you know, essentially kind of helping my wife kill herself right it's all kind of bets are off at that point this is not a man who is diplomatic he's a man who's been in the military he saw horrible things he's come back from that and he's he's gotten used to using his hands his hands do the 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 talking for him so i said you know we just have to cut all of that dialogue um and he did (laughs) and then uh, he said "Yeah, yeah yeah i think you're right you have a point and then we didn't choreograph anything with that. I trusted Frank. Frank is clearly someone who's physically capable, has done fight movies before. And I said, Frank, you have to like lead this. I'm I'm not that kind of guy. I, I haven't done extensive fight training and I I haven't done a lot of fighting movies. So 
really I put a lot of faith and, and trust in him to, to kind of guide us through those beats as, as aggressively as he wanted and everything else. So I think the, the, the combo of having an understanding director and also then another actor who was just so physically capable, not me, you know, Frank, it was just, it was so, that was, that really made that scene. Any bumps uh, and bruises from it? Oh, tons. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I thought I broke my finger a couple of times. <laughs> uh, uh, I took all the skin off my knuckles. My, my, all the skin came off because I was, you know, in that bag scene, that blood on the bag is my blood. Oh, God. Um, you know, but other than that, I mean, just sheer exhaustion. And I fell asleep on the set in the last night because I was just so dead from, you know, um, doing multiple takes of, of the large kind of cage fight. But it's not something I enjoy doing. You know, I think I've worked with a lot of actors who enjoy you know, exerting themselves in this kind of very physical way, I really don't. <laughs> I, I, I really hate it, actually. I hate feeling that kind of that exhaustion and knowing that you're going to have to do it for the rest of the night and just feeling... Is it because, like, like, you're you trying can't. to, like, combine performance, like, athletic performance with acting performance or something? I mean... Wh- I think, yeah, because you're doing dual things. It's not You're not just, like, going for a jog or you're not just, you know... There is... You are fighting for your life. You know, you, know, you are fighting for those kids yeah. and for your wife and all of that has to go into that the performance of that you know it's it's not just it's not just you have to beat frank in the cage it's what it represents you know and then certainly for the last fight between me and frank when i know what he's done and i know what the price that my that the, his family has paid for this you know then there's a whole other level of exhaustion because you're kind of emotionally wiped you know, it's just, it's never, it's just, I, just, I did this other movie where I play a neo-Nazi and there's kind of a lot of fighting in that as well. And it's just, every time that I'm in that position, I'm like, how the fuck did I end up in this position <laughs> Like, why have I Can I, I play a lawyer myself? or what? <laughs> yes, no, seriously, I'd love to just play a guy in a suit who just sits behind a desk and has like a regular job. That'd yeah. be lovely. You have to, you have to like slowly mature into when you can play like a police sergeant who's just like, give me your gun sure, and your badge. Sure. Just fat. <laughs> Is that lunch? Fat yeah. 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 That'd be great. Um, it's interesting to hear you the way you're talking about this movie because I can hear the like degree of, of sort of pride of authorship you have in it, or at least like the, the sense of like equity you have in this movie. And I was wondering mm-hmm. if that's something that's becoming increasingly important for you as you get older and have like a longer and longer career that the things that you work on have your fingerprints on them in more ways than just your performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like it's a very rare thing to have. I think that's why, you know, I think if, if, if you're hearing relish in my voice is because it comes to you all too rarely. You know, I, th- I think an actor's, role in a film's production is, is very minimal. You know, you, you turn up and you do your bit and, and that's it. And then it's, you know, edited and agreed upon or not agreed upon. And then other people didn't like that bit. So they take it out and reconstruct it. And, and then what comes out at the end is um, certainly a few times filtered and a few times distilled from what you had intended. With this, I, I genuinely feel like Tim and I had an understanding. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly why, you know, I'm desperate to work with him again is that there, there's just a very clear understanding about w- what we were trying to achieve. And when we felt that we'd achieved that in production, we moved on. And it's just very rare that you, you have that experience. But, I, you know, here's the other thing is that I, I really feel like every job at the minute certainly is, is a bit life or death. It's, uh, you know, it's, I have a family now, very mm-hmm. similar to the character in, in the movie. You know, I have a kid and, uh, you know, another one on the way, like, this is is work, obviously, and and it's 
very different work from a, a lot of you know other people who have kind of de- different jobs. But it's certainly something that you you don't know how long this is going to last. You don't know how long these opportunities are going to come your way. So like every job is like I better give everything to this because if I don't, I would feel like I did myself and you know the director or whoever like a total disservice. So I take it very seriously. Um, you know, I, I, I work with a lot of passion and, uh, and you know, I ex- kind of expect everyone else to do the same. Yeah. You know, I, this is all I've ever done. This is all I've ever, you know, I haven't had another job really. I, I started out as a kid and and um, I don't take this opportunity and, and my role's, you know, for granted at all. I feel very fortunate to be where I am. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was so, you know, often on this podcast, uh, my partner and I talk about what it's like as a audience member essentially to kind of try to wrap your arms around the amount of movies and television that's being made and Mm. the sort of dominance of say franchise films and for probably most people who go to the theaters they're engaging with movies through marvel movies and dc movies and star wars movies and stuff like that right but then you've got this whole world of long-form television and movies like donnie brook that are still getting made and being put out via ifc and you got a24 in these places for an actor are you overwhelmed? Is it harder than ever to navigate things? Is it more exciting than ever to navigate things? Because you have all these different places you can put your work. Well, what, what's it like right now for someone like you who's done so many different kinds of acting? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's certainly, you know, the, the change in the landscape is, is, is very evident, I think. I think the change in the, the, the kinds of material that is being considered by people to get made or certainly things that I'm getting sent it has to, you know, it has to kind of be an event. You know, I think there was a time, like, I remember, you know, in the kind of mid-2000s where that kind of, like, suburban indie drama was being made a lot, and I think that's just fallen by the wayside. Yeah. I just don't think that would ever get greenlit. No one's kind of interested in that. It has to be speaking to the immediacy of now, and it has to be some kind of reflection of, of, of where we're at, which I think is both great and and, and troubling. You know, I, I've... There's, there's kind of two sides to that coin. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I look at Disney Slate this year and I go like, wow, this is this is really mental. Yeah. This is really crazy. Like, the, the amount of stuff that those guys have this year is nuts. Have you seen that Slate? Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, it's bananas. So, I mean, in terms of, like, films like mine, or, you know, I have a film with A24 as well this year, um... You know, I mean, you're offering counter-programming, but at the same time, there's a real concern that you're just being flushed out of the market. Yeah, Disney might have the two biggest movies of all time this year, you know, with Avengers and Star Wars. And who knows what they have next year. Exactly. You know, they have number three of all of those things. Yeah, right. So, yeah, I mean, it is alarming, I would say. You know, I, 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 I want the cinema experience to endure. I think there is, you know go back to to basics. I think there is something about a bunch of people sit in the dark and experience something about themselves and reflect on their own lives. I, I, I think it's a very cathartic experience. I, I hope, really hope that that doesn't go away. But certainly, it's getting more and more difficult to get people to leave their houses. I know, because I don't want to leave my house either. You know, I'm, not, I'm not saying that yeah. I'm any different from anyone else, but um, it's a very interesting time. Um, I don't know how to feel about it. I feel very conflicted all the time. Well, I mean, that's one thing that you could say. I mean, people's uh, tolerance levels for violence may vary, but I don't think... Donnybrook's not like anything I've seen in a very long time. 
You know, and mm-hmm. I and I think right. that and it's not about people that we often see on screen, which is mm-hmm. really all you could ask for a movie is to be sort of challenged like that on a, on a really elemental level. I think I want to always be taken to a world. Yeah. You know, I want to go away from my world and be taken. And, and certainly this is a movie that reflects our times, our very recent kind of political climate, for sure. But um, there is something extremely heightened, extremely operatic in what Tim has done with these characters and with 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 the journey of this of this story. So I think it is something that needs to be experienced in the dark. Yeah. I mean, I really do. You know, I, I think the reach of, of streaming services is vast. And, you know, like there's been things that I've said no to or whatever, but that, that has then streamed on Netflix. And it's something that like literally 50 million people have seen in a day <laughs> and been like, whoops, I maybe should have done that. You know, I'm not denying that the reach of these things are extremely profound. I don't know. I, I'm a little bit old-fashioned, um, and I, I enjoy the kind of theatrical experience. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for for calling in, man. And I really hope people check Donnie Brook out because it really is a one of a kind movie. Oh, thank you, man. I really appreciate your time, and thanks for having me. Yeah, take care. Today's episode of The Watch was brought to you by ADT Real Protection. When it comes to something as important as your family's safety, you deserve real protection from ADT. Real Protection means the nation's number one smart home security provider is there for you when you need them. Real Protection means 18,000 employees safeguarding you. No matter how you define safety, ADT is there. ADT Real Protection. Visit ADT.com slash podcast to learn more about how ADT can design and install a secure smart home just for you.